be seated. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 9, as together we're going to be taking a look at this particular section of Scripture, and in particular thinking about what it can teach us about the way that we should go today and now. We know that the Word of God is applicable in every time and in every age, but uh, before we read this one, I do want to make a, just a brief comment. There, uh, there are benefits to preaching topically, in other words, uh, preaching just on sections of Scripture that you uh, pick yourself, um, because it allows you, of course, to... Uh, to cherry-pick the subjects that you want to be able to preach from. You uh, direct them, and therefore, if you want to, you can preach on whatever theological hobby horses you have. Uh, you can also choose to preach you know, a light and airy, encouraging message always, simply by, by choosing those verses that emphasize those things. But if you preach, on the other hand, lectio continua, which means through books, verse by verse, you are directed by the text itself. And if you want to preach those verses faithfully, Sometimes you will come to, to hard things, hard subjects, hard theological ideas. We're not going to be dealing with a hard theological idea today. We're going to be dealing with some basic covenant theology, but uh, with a hard application, particularly hard in the history of uh, Israel, and I would argue hard in the application uh, that it should, um, or that should be made, rather, to nations in all times and ages, uh, particularly our own. So, uh, hopefully, there will be hope at the end of the sermon, but just to warn you, we are going to be dealing with some, uh, some heavy issues. But before we do that, let's seek God's help. Let's ask him to bless our time as we go through his word. God, our gracious Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would be the light of our minds, that you would drive away all of the distractions that come in. We know, Lord, that whenever your word is being preached, there is spiritual warfare going on. We know that the devil desires to, to break that word and to uh, force, O oh Lord, our attention elsewhere. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you would thwart him in this. Help us to think deeply now about where we are, not just as, a, as individuals or as a congregation, but as a nation. We are part of a people. We are part of a society. We are supposed to be praying for that society, and we're supposed to understand it and apply the word to it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight and wisdom greater than we have of ourselves. Oh, Lord, help me to preach. Remind me that I am supposed to be your messenger and not inserting my own thoughts and my own opinions, but rather giving your people your word, no matter how difficult it is to receive. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Once again, reading from 1 Kings, and I will be reading... Chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplications that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built, to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, 
and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought them, uh, their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I hope you'll forgive me if I, if I make a personal, uh, a, a personal or give a personal example that I hope will tie these verses to our particular time, our particular place. Now, uh, if you know our family, you know we have German shepherds. And we love German shepherds, but genetically at this point, they are so overbred, they come with a number of uh, inbuilt defects. Uh, they do be having genetic problems, to quote my oldest daughter. Uh, they have bad hips, they have bad knees, and they have, uh, on occasion, bad ear infections. And that's uh, what's going on with our largest German Shepherd, Allie, right now. Uh, she has been worrying now at her ear, and she tore the outside of it. So it was definitely time to take her to the vet, so I did. Uh, and I was struck as I, I came in, and uh, the lady at the desk uh, eventually turned her attention to me to help me. Um, by her appearance, I, I just I could not help to be struck by it. Um, I have to assume that when I say the lady at the desk, there I, I am assuming gender, I, I will say that. Um, she had a large Satanist pendant on it, a rather large black pentacle with the head of Baphomet the ghost, right? Uh, ghost, goat, I wish it was the ghost. The goat in the center, um, and uh, she had um, a pink mohawk, uh, head shaved otherwise, uh, large gauge earrings, uh, more piercings than I could count, and, of course, the, the, the giant nose ring and LGBTQ bling uh, all over her outfit and also on her desk by her workstation. She also had a number of signs that indicated she had a very, very, very high view of animals and a very, very, very low view of people. Um, now, several things at that moment struck me, apart from the fact that I needed to check my dog in and see a vet and things like that. Uh, there were three things that struck me, in fact. The first the, was that when I was a kid, and I know that was in another century, it was way back in the 20th century, 40 years ago, uh, even in liberal New Jersey, you couldn't have worn anything that she was wearing to work. It just would have been an impossibility. Now, we're not surprised to see it. And in fact, it's odd uh, to, or wrong, we might say, to bring it up. Uh, technically, I'm transgressing by having noticed it. I'm supposed to have thought, ooh, this is absolutely normal. Let me just talk to the woman wearing the big pentacle uh, in front of me. The second thing that struck me is though that we live in the same nation and the same city, and the nation uh, that we live in is America, and the city that we live in is not Seattle or Portland or New York or Los Angeles. We, we live in fairly conservative Fayetteville that I'm talking to somebody who lives in the same place I do, same community, and yet our view, our worldview, doesn't intersect at any point. The things that are foundational for both of us, they just don't match up at all. 
Uh, our conceptions of marriage, human sexuality, male and female roles, uh, the family, childbearing, good, evil, and probably a, a host of other issues like uh, abortion, creation, economics, and so on, I can guarantee you they wouldn't line up at all. And that's not because my worldview, the worldview that I have, is, is radical or, or new, something that I'm creating on a regular basis. In fact, the worldview that I hold is, is, is very old. A hundred years ago, uh, it would have been viewed as mainstream, uh, simply old school biblical Presbyterianism. It would have been really boring, a complete yawner. Uh, now, you may be thinking at this point, dude, um, are you surprised your worldview didn't line up with that of an LGBTQ Satanist? I mean, come on, you're, you're a pastor after all. Well, hear me out. Uh, here's the, the third thing that struck me. Her LGBTQ Satanist worldview, uh, while not the majority, at least I hope not the majority yet, is not uncommon. It's an expression of the radical autonomy that's become the norm for people living in the United States, particularly people living in the United States under 30, and according to the polls also, the majority of single women living in our nation. Um, and especially amongst college graduates, that is the assumption, that there is this radical ability to choose your own way, to choose what gods you will believe in, to choose what is evil and what is good, to make your mores up as you go along. And as much as we may not want to admit it, her views on abortion and sexuality are the mainstream. And I have to admit at this point, it's my views that the nation views as weird or in some way repulsive. If you want an example of that, all you have to do is go to Barnes & Noble within our own community. Okay, Barnes & Noble is not an exotic bookstore. It's a mainstream chain store. Uh, when I was a kid, when you wanted to find uh, occult books, and I, I know this because I was into the occult. I, my worldview was uh, probably just as, as uh, probably more occultic than hers when I, was, when I was growing up, but still, you couldn't go to Barnes and Noble and find occult works. You had to go into New York City and you had to go to creepy bookstores and off, off the, you know, the beaten path tracks and alleyways and so on. And, and go through their material. And it was the same with LGBTQ stuff. They had specific bookstores and you had to seek them out. Now, if you go to Barnes & Noble here in our city and you go into the young adults and children's section, you will find in the center, what they used to call it because I worked at a bookstore, the anchor shelves where the eye is naturally drawn to, you'll find all of this LGBTQ uh, novellas and graphic novels and so on and all of it very explicit what we would have called at one time pornographic. And not just in one section, but sprinkled all the way through. And not just LGBTQ stuff, but occult. In fact, I was told one of the most popular graphic novels uh, selling at this point in time is called Coven, and it's about a lesbian teenage witch. Um, so, and we're not talking about like the cutesy witch from Halloween, we're talking about somebody who's actually practicing dark arts and so on. What am I saying? Well, in terms of dominance, the worldviews have switched positions. What has happened is that my worldview is now the transgressive worldview. And therefore, it's something that's, you know, it's abhorrent. We wish you wouldn't hold it, but if you are going to hold it, keep it in the closet. Do not bring it out. Do not discuss it. Do not let it out in public. Well, 
worldviews like hers have become celebrated and mainstream. We've literally switched positions. I've gone into the closet and that, and that worldview has come out of it. Now, how is that relevant to all of those verses we read? Well, remember, if you will, if you can, back to the intro to 1 Kings, who the original audience was for these verses. The majority of 1 Kings was probably written by the prophet Jeremiah in the 500s BC, just before the final collapse of the southern kingdom of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The believers in Jeremiah's day, that is those Christians, or rather we would say the members of, of God's community, the Kahal, uh, those believers who are looking forward to the advent of all of God's promises and the coming, yes, of, of Christ, even though they did not know him as Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to Emmanuel, God with us, the promised one of Scripture, Jehovah, Sid Kinu, the Lord, our righteousness, great David's greater son, the Messiah, the Redeemer. Those people who still held on to that would have looked around at their nation and they would have seen a shrinking, weak nation on the verge of collapse. They would have seen corrupt politicians. They would have seen false prophets. They would have seen the worship of false gods everywhere. They would have seen sexual perversion having become part of worship. They would have seen things that the Lord said were abominable in his word, like, for instance, the making of your Hebrew brothers and sisters into perpetual slaves with no possibility of them being released. They would have seen that all around. And as run down in their own age as Jerusalem and the temple were, they would have seen, in essence, reminders of their once glorious nature. The way that these were once obviously signs of, of a glorious kingdom, but no more. And they would have wondered what happened. Why is it that a hundred years ago, the northern kingdom, why, why was the kingdom divided between north and south? Why was the northern kingdom destroyed, taken away into exile by the Assyrians? And why now are we falling apart? Why has this happened? They would have known that there was a time when there had been a king called Solomon, the son of David, the richest and the wisest king in all of the ancient Near East. He had all 12 of the tribes under him. He ruled from Dan to Beersheba. The surrounding nations, instead of being threatening and always coming in and raiding them, and them being in danger of being overwhelmed and overcome at any moment, those surrounding nations were in awe of them and had bowed the knee to them. There was a time when silver was virtually worthless in Jerusalem because there was so much gold. That had happened at one time. But why? Why had everything changed? Why had the kingdom been divided? Why had the northern tribes gone away over a hundred years ago? Why were they now vassals driven to and fro? They were like a, you know, the ball in a pong game between Jerusalem and, and uh, rather not Jerusalem, between Egypt and, and Babylon. Why were they, they now in such a, a mess? Why were the rulers corrupt? Why were the people enslaved? Why was it that the men who spoke truth like Jeremiah himself likely to be thrown in jail or worse? How did they go from such glory and prosperity and blessing to such a, an utterly wretched condition? How did it happen? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is 1 Kings tells us right here. 
at the height of the glory of King Solomon, after he had dedicated the temple to the Lord, the Lord once again appeared to him, and he answered him. And the Lord, who deals in covenants, that is promises with his people, he entered into a covenant with Solomon. He reaffirmed what he had said to him earlier, and before that, what he had said to David. He says, if you are faithful, if you will follow me, if you will keep my commandments, the house that you have built for me here in Jerusalem, and you're lying, your offspring and your people will be blessed forever. But if you don't, the Lord gives the opposite side of the covenant. If you don't, if you turn from following me, if you go after false gods, if you don't keep my commandments, if you treat me as worthless and you serve the false gods of the surrounding nations and you adopt their abominations, then this nation, this temple, this city, they will all be cut off. In fact, he warns him, you will become a watchword amongst the peoples. You will be cast out of this land. And the nations that see the ruin of it will be astonished. And they'll stop and they'll say, how did this happen? And then other people will come and say, ah, well, they, they turned against their God. They stopped serving him and they served other gods. And the promised punishment came upon them. And then the reader of 1 Kings, as he goes on and continues to read, he will see how Solomon's zeal for God, in fact, did diminish as the years went on. His pagan wives, the wives that he was not supposed to have, they turned his heart away from worship in the temple of God. They turned him to, to build temples to their false gods. And then in turn, the other people, seeing the example of their leaders, their hearts were turned away. And then the kingdom, the, the reader would go on and he would see how the kingdom was divided and how the people began to serve false gods, how the worship in the temple began to be adulterated, how the Israelites began to bring in all sorts of false worship practices that the Lord had not said to do, how they had embraced untruths and how they began to do things that the Lord said, this is an utter abomination. And I don't mean just eating the things that the Lord said, don't eat these things. But things like causing their children to pass through the fire. Worshipping Molech by sacrificing their kids. And the reader would also learn that the Lord had been patient. The Lord had been merciful. And he had sent prophet after prophet to remind them. And to warn them, if you go on in this way, it leads to destruction. The Lord had, in effect, seen his people driving at breakneck speed towards a cliff. And he had set up roadblock after roadblock, but they had zigged and zagged around them. And they had driven off at the end. They'd remained stiff-necked, stubborn, unwilling to be turned from their course. And eventually, the Lord's promise had come true. And his judgment had fallen upon Jerusalem. They had tried everything in the book rather than worshiping God. They had tried false gods. They tried new worship. They tried alliances with the nations that God said don't make alliances with. Uh, they tried phony patriotism. They'd, they'd even tried the power of positive thinking. If we just pretend constantly that the curses that are about to fall upon us aren't going to fall upon us if we just deny 
everything that's going on in our nation and instead say, la, 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 we're fine, you'll be okay. And then we'll bring in the false prophets and they'll tell the king everything's going to be okay right up to the very end that everything will be okay. The reader of 1 Kings would have seen that and would have understood. Now I know why we are why, where we are. Now, America is not a covenanted nation like Israel. But there are universal principles at work here. One of them is in Proverbs 1434, uh, which of course was written ironically by Solomon, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And Romans, for instance, lets us know that the more a people deny God and worship the creation instead of the creator, the more God gives them over, gives them up. As Romans 128 puts it, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a base to do a bit, sorry, to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting. Now, let me ask you a question. This is a very important question. I want you to think about this. If you are over, let's say 35, okay, I want you to think back to those happy golden days of yore when you were a kid. Think about that for a moment. Uh, now, this was not an ideal time by a long shot, but let me ask you, as you think about the days when you were growing up as a, as a young child, are people today happier in the United States? Are families more cohesive? Is the nation prouder? Is it stronger? Are our products cheaper? Are marriages stronger? Are people more polite to one another? Are our words more seasoned with salt today than they were back then? Are we a people who are more diligent? Are we a people who are more hopeful today? Is the culture that we live in now healthier than the culture that we lived in 40 years ago or 50 years ago. By any measure, even by the polls we take, no, it's not. Our children, the majority of them, are born out of wedlock. Our families fall apart at a rate when they, when they begin at, at, that should make us weep. People if they're to be believed when they answer the pollsters, are unhappier today than they have ever been in American history since we've been asking that question. By every measure, our nation is becoming more and more divided as well, more and more balkanized. We gnash at one another. Let me ask you, do you really think that we can continue in that line without disaster? Can we continue sacrificing children right up until or sometimes now beyond the moment of birth? Can we continue in a way in which the views of Satanists are becoming more and more mainstream? And to put it just frankly, the views of Presbyterian pastors are becoming more and more whack. Can we go on like that without disaster? Will that work? And my answer is no more than it would work in the original setting in which these verses were given. Just as eventually Jerusalem, which had been so exalted, so blessed after having been delivered out of Egypt by the Lord, collapsed because they turned against him, so too that will happen to us. 
We forget that our forebears, while they weren't delivered from Egypt, many of them were delivered out of places where they were oppressed for their faith in the Lord. Places like England, the Puritans coming there. Places like Europe. We think of, of the, the amazing number of Huguenots who came over because they were oppressed and persecuted for their, their faith, their strong reformed faith. And the role that they played in the building up of this nation. One of them, uh, his father was named Rivois. He had changed their name to Revere, Paul Revere, the man who rode around saying the British are coming. The British are coming. He was the descendant of Huguenots. But what have we done now that we've come into this land and we've established it? We've turned against the Lord. We've turned against his word. So what can we do? Well, let me tell you what's not going to work first before I tell you there is something that will work. First off, politics by itself is not going to work. It simply won't. I could have stood at that desk, not that she would have let me, and talked to that lady for hours about her worldview, talked to her about abortion, talked to her about marriage, talked to her about uh, you know, all manner of morals and politics. And she probably would have become angrier and angrier and angrier. And eventually, you know, I would have been asked to, to leave. She wouldn't have changed her mind about anything. Her entire worldview was based in those views. And she wasn't about to simply swerve into another one. That she'd been I, I have no doubt that, you know, she'd been raised in those worldviews and they were being continuously affirmed by the people around her. So what do we do? Is the Second Amendment going to save us? No. Second Amendment, brothers and sisters, is not going to save us. What will save us, though? Well, there is something so powerful that it can change everything. And what I'm talking about is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division between soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is able to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. It is capable of casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is capable of bringing every thought into captivity and into obedience to Christ. What am I speaking of? Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking of the gospel. I am speaking of this word. And I am speaking of it and telling you this is the truth. Not just because the word itself tells me it's the truth. And history shows me what has happened when, when this word has been proclaimed with strength and vigor. By men who feel it burning within their bones. I know it myself. Because my worldview prior to becoming a Christian was as anti-Christian as you can get. I hated Christians. I hated the Bible. I hated the church. But what happened was the gospel came and it changed my heart. It blasted my unbiblical worldview to smithereens. It opened my eyes to see the truth, to see myself as I am. And most importantly, it brought me to Christ so that I bowed the knee to him. And a change began in me. One of the, I remember when I was converted, one of the things, one of the first thoughts I had is, oh no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I don't know how to be a Christian. I don't even know Christian. How am I going to be a Christian? But the wonderful thing is, and you who have been changed by Christ know this, he puts his spirit in your heart and he changes you. And as you read your word, your thoughts are more and more conformed to his thoughts 
your desires are more and more conformed to his desires. Your mode of speech becomes more and more Christ-like. You're conformed to the image of Christ. And then he, providentially, he brings you into communion with, with his saints. He brought, you know, <laughs> it's not luck. It's his word. He is working in the world. He brought mentor after mentor into my life to help me grow in Christ. He did that work. Philosophers could not have done it. Politicians could not have done it. Moralizers, social workers, you name it, they couldn't have done it. They could not have changed me. But the word of God, living and powerful, it changed me. This word of God has changed society after society, nation after nation. Nations that had seemed like they were on the brink have been revived and brought to a place where they were able to, to worship the Lord. Paul puts it this way. In Titus 3.3 3, he says, For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Uh, to men. What we need, brothers and sisters, at this point in time is to get serious about recovering the gospel. We need to, to stop with the gimmicks. We need to stop attempting to attract the church in by being as worldly as possible. We're just like you. Well, if we're just like you, we're going to end up just like Jerusalem when this book was written. What we need to be affirming constantly now is how this life-changing gospel has worked in our lives and can work in the lives of others. I was dreadfully unhappy prior to becoming a Christian. I, I had that God-shaped hole in my, my heart, and I spent a lot of my time dreadfully depressed, living as an orphan in the midst of the universe, feeling the weight of that, that aloneness. I had a physical family, yes, but I didn't know what a family really was. And I certainly didn't know the communion that comes from being part of the family of Christ. You can go to these people throughout the world not just here in Fayetteville, who are lost, who are living in darkness, who are angry, who are bitter, who are confused. And although they will think you are their biggest problem, I, I remember that to this day. Uh, time and again, God sent messengers to me prior to my conversion, and I literally thought they were the biggest problem. I really thought that they were the, the thing that needed to be removed. And then later on, I saw that, that they had the key. The same thing you remember happened in the New Testament, as God built his church, the apostles went out to the society, the state thought that they were the biggest problem and sought to remove them. But heart by heart, they changed the culture. They changed the people. They turned them to Christ. They turned the mighty Roman Empire upside down. I want to tell you, the power hasn't changed. The situation hasn't changed. We can, if we go back to the word, 
If we begin to preach, once again, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, if we tell people, yes, I do actually know what your problem is, your problem, believe it or not, is your own heart. It's you. But I know the answer to it. I know the solution. I know the only thing that will change it. And it's the gospel. It's not me. It's not my opinion. It's Christ and a relationship with him. If you will but preach that gospel, if we all, if every Christian in the United States came together and we preached the gospel message instead of tiptoeing around it constantly and trying to attract people with things other than the gospel, come to our church. We have the best choir. Come to our church. We have the best light show. Come to our church. We have the best youth group. Come to our church. How about come to our church? Because you need to hear the gospel. It will change your life. I'll never forget the story Sinclair Ferguson, one of my uh, professors, taught me. He'd been raised in a nominally Presbyterian family, but he had, uh, he had essentially turned his, his heart against it. Uh, he had never embraced it. And his sister had come to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day he was getting on a bus. And she was terribly embarrassed. But she thrust a Bible into his hands. And she said, read this. It will do you good. How many opportunities have we had to do the same thing? And yet we have not done that. Because we're afraid it will be embarrassing. We're afraid it will offend people. We're afraid they'll turn on us and gnash at us. And so maybe they will. Maybe they will. Or maybe that will be the beginning as it was. Uh, uh, Ferguson was absolutely astonished. But he did read the word. And then he read other words. It's funny, he was talking about, uh, he was reading uh, John Owen, Mortification of Sin on a Bus. And he suddenly realized, this man knows my heart. He knows me from the inside out. And how? Because... Owen was writing in sweet harmony with the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, do we not believe in a supernatural religion? Do we not believe in a religion that can change everything? If we want this nation to be on the right foundation, if we want our families to be on the right foundation, our children to be on the right foundation, then we need a recovery of the word. We need to go in the direction that the Lord spelled out to Solomon, loving him and serving him and obeying him even when it's hard. But if we do, oh, the benefits of following the Lord are beyond compare. What can compare with eternal life and the joy of our salvation? What can compare when we do come to that moment when we're about to die, when we're struggling for breath, and I've seen that again and again, when we don't have to fear what comes next. But know that as we pass from this life, we are going into the life eternal And that every sorrow that we have ever encountered is about to come to an end. And every joy inexpressible that we can only barely get a glimmer of is about to begin and never to end. Isn't that a gift worth giving to everyone? I pray that that the desire to see a, a revival, a rebirth of religion in our nation, in this city would begin here. And that we would not be appalled or grossed out or whatever by the people whose worldviews are diametrically opposed to ours. But we would remember that we were once just like them, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. But Christ changed us, and he can change them too. 
and that our hearts would go out to them and we would desire to give the gift that God gave to us to them as well. I pray that would be something that would animate your hearts in the days to come. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, I do thank you, Lord, for your life-giving word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us, the change that it can work in our nation, in our lives, in our families, in our congregations. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would trust it more and that we would be vigorous when we share the truth, even if it's just simply giving someone a Bible and asking them to read it or to come with us to church, not so that they would hear how awesomely awesome our praise band is, but rather so that they would hear the word of God and would have new life by it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us that hope and that zeal. May we have, Lord, an intense desire more than anything else to know Christ and to make him known to others. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name.